KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is gun violence. In part two of our Flashpoint deep dive into stopping the shootings, we talk to young men closest to the pain. It's all around drugs and guns, you know, my entire life. They explain gun culture on Philly streets and why it's so hard to break the cycle of violence. It's so dangerous that people are in a situation where they have to risk their freedom to protect their life. We take a peek at some solutions. We dig in. Then the Democratic Party made history when Senator Kamala Harris became the first woman of color on a major party ticket. I think it really shows that Vice President Biden understood the moment that we are living in. Political Operative provides a peek behind the curtain on what the VP pick means for the future. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the uncontrolled violence in the city of Philadelphia. This week, city council rallied and then a special committee held hearings on why shootings and killings have ticked up more than 30% over last year. There were tense moments, but few resolutions as to what to do next. In part two of this Flashpoint discussion, we chat with three people most likely to be on either side of the gun. The idea that those closest to the pain, they also provide the best insight for solutions. With me to discuss this Flashpoint is John Solomon, founder of Endangered Kind. We also have Dana Williams, a.k.a. Philly's Motivation. He's a speaker, preacher, and activist. And finally, we have Ant Brown, a community activist and recording artist. Uh, welcome to Flashpoint, gentlemen. Yes, ma'am. Thank, Thank you for having us. I had to bring you all in because all three of you were at the Peace Not Guns rally earlier this week representing for young Black men in this fight against violence. I want each of you to take a moment and tell us a little bit about your story before we dig into this very complicated issue. Of course, my name is John Solomon. To give everybody a, a background of myself and what kind of led to me to get involved in um, violence prevention, you know, as a kid, at the age of about 13 or 14, I found myself involved in gun violence in my community. And as a result, I was shot at 15. The same year, I watched a very close friend of mine get killed right in front of me. And for many years, I, I carried a pain in me, and it made me want to take revenge for those that killed my friend and like i said for years I, I was on this mission and it was a group of my um a group of friends of mine as well that was included and you know um it led to me being arrested at 17 uh, for firearm charges came home was arrested again three months later for a shooting i spent almost five years in prison and during the time of my incarceration is where about two years in within my um, incarceration I had to change mine, you know, something, something within me wanted better. And, you know, I began my process of preparing to um, embrace that change. So I began to surround myself around the right types of people. I began educating myself and figuring out who I wanted to become because I wanted to be a better son for my mother. I wanted to be a better man in my community. So I stayed on this path for years while I was in prison and I came home and I, you know, I realized that 
the guys that were in my community that was um, now actively shooting were young kids that looked up to me when I was um, out there doing the same thing. So that kind of uh, re-sparked my urgency of addressing it right away as soon as I came home. And ever since then, I've been on this path. I created a nonprofit organization called Endangered Kind. We're a mobile advocacy group. Our, our aim is to create a platform to educate the public on the environmental factors that contributes to gun violence. And for example, what most people don't understand is that when you get involved in gun violence, mm. it's really challenging to transition out of the lifestyle. Simply because when you cause harm to people, when you have hurt people and you come home or you decide that you want better in life, those people that you hurt may not want better in life. They may want to cause harm to you because you cause harm to them. And sometimes it's hard for you to safely transition into this new person that you want to become without your, your history catching up with you and you getting killed because that is, that's a reality that we don't talk about. There are people out there that want better but because they're in an environment where the people that they were once going to war with don't want better, it's hard for them to transition out of their lifestyle without getting killed. Yeah. Um, and tell a little bit about your background. I'm, uh, I'm Ant Brown. I'm a hip-hop artist, 25-year-old hip-hop artist. Um, getting into activism just came from growing up. It was in my heart because my mom, she was an activist, but she wasn't as heavy with it. As me, she more is like the family activist. She tried to keep everybody together. She passed away three years ago. Um, so with that, that made me, you know, really take activism more serious and giving back to people and just wanting to be a representation of the young people, providing resources for other people. I don't even really like public speaking that much. I'm just good at performing live. But I, when I when I said at that rally, like, give the young people a voice at the table on a regular, it wasn't even necessarily just for me. It was more so for people like this on this podcast right now. So I'm like, look, talk to Philly's motivation because we need the young people face yeah. with this generation different to stop gun violence, basically. We need the mm -hmm. young people face. And it's, it's crazy how we all have the same stories. We all go through the same things. I suffer from anxiety because of, the deaths of friends and family members that I have witnessed coming up. Not seeing for myself, but my older brother just losing somebody close to you, that throws off your frequency. Yes. And that's another reason I'm a big advocate for anti-gun violence and would be getting into prison. Yeah, thank you, uh, Aunt, um, for that. Philly's motivation. God bless. God bless. I met you, I met you a while back. Yes, um, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And you came on my other platform. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, and 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 was very positive. Yes, and we talked about the Jeff Brown stories and all this, but yes, you do, yes, I didn't know you did anti-violence work too. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm all circular. Um, like I said, when I um I used to do my videos. You know, I created Philly's motivation with put the guns down and pick up the books. I used to do my videos um at work on my breaks. <laughs> you know, I used to do my activism work at my on my breaks for my videos. I probably get in trouble sometimes taking a two hour break because I wanted to go to a rally or I want to go read a Bible scripture to a kid or um, I used to do loss prevention. So when they'll come in and steal or, you know, they'll come and take things, um, you know, I'll get them help and get them counsel work. And so that was really my main platform. I don't work there anymore. Now I'm able to fully engage in activism, motivational speaking and preaching full time now. Um, so a little bit about myself is, you know, I grew up, I'm in South Philadelphia. So I was around drugs and guns, you know, my entire life. Um, even my family members being a part of it, you know what I mean? 
Um, so it really just motivated me to be the difference maker um, because, you know, I saw too many people lose their lives to this thing, such as my brother, such as my cousin, some of, some of my closest friends. Um, and it would just be growing up to where the point now, if someone gets murdered that's very, very close to me, I don't even feel it no more. Um, and I'm trying to take us out of that, um, normalizing, you know, um, gun violence because simply um, it hurts our mothers. Um, simply it hurts the children. Um, you don't know the trauma that they're facing. Um, I've seen someone get killed in front of my own eyes and there's times where I can't sleep at night. Um, so I've dedicated my life every single day to if it's something that I have to die for. Martin Luther King did it. John Lewis did it. Rosa Parks did it. And, you know, I want to be one of the people to do it as well, um, simply because our children deserve better. Um, and the number one thing is understanding. Um, and that's why I thunk Wildlaw and I thunk Aunt Brown at that event, because simply when a young man was snapping, um, that's what they do. You know, they silence us and they, you know, don't give us a platform to speak or talk to our feelings because they feel as though that they know it all. But Thanks. in order for Thanks. exactly in order for us to get to the youth, we have to understand us. One thing I noticed when I knew that motivational speaking was my gift and my talent. Once again, I want to thank Ann Brown for allowing me to get up there and say something because I wasn't even on the car. Um, and not saying it was hurtful or anything, but you know, I've been doing this work, man, for about a year and a half every single day behind it, not even putting it on camera or anything like that. And you know, they just got the people like the officers up there speaking to people and they're, and they're not going to simply listen because at the end of the day, you think that you fully think that you guys care. Yeah. But when they see us, we still live in that same situation. We got brothers that are still in that same situation. I put almost a thousand dollars on my homies' books who made the wrong mistakes because they were subdued to drugs. You know, I want to get to the root of the problem. I want to get to the foundation. I don't just want to go out there and talk for an hour. And then after that, we forget all about it. No, you know, I want to pray yeah. with these kids. I want to put God into their heart. I want to believe in them, tell them that I trust in them because they didn't have a mom. I know I'm still not have a mom and I'm still not to have a dad. And they might handle it differently from how I'll handle it. But I dedicated my whole entire life to make sure that a young kid can follow his dream and his passion because their mom's not getting a chance to see them graduate because you could be 12 years old playing on your porch and get killed. And, and that's why I wanted to bring you um, three gentlemen in here because I've gone to a lot of Stop the Violence rally, these big events, and there's like nobody under 35 in the room. And yeah. um, I feel like that's a problem. I want to ask you guys, why do you think that is? I, I think it's because they've been on the scene the longest. Some of them got actual positions in the city, like some of them war leaders, some of them committee, you know what I'm saying? So they're going to be at stuff like that because this is it's like their job. It's their duty. It's in their heart to say, I'm doing activism. So we are going all going to be in this place. But who has those positions? Who has war leader positions? Leaders of the community It's all older people, at least 35 and up. Some young, very few, but... Those are the people you're going to see everywhere from when they put these type of things together. And that's why they, they don't, it's not, they have youth council and stuff like that. I think a few of them was out there as well. But I think it's just, there's no creativity going on with how we're going to stop gun violence. This is me thinking that from a creative. I think yeah. that's my only gift or skill is being a creative and just moving with my purpose. I feel like create, creatively, we get the same results when you do the same thing over and over and over again. So I like with today's time, it's going to take definitely a collaboration between the police and the young people. We can't, we can't block them out. It's not realistic anyway, unless we always ready to get up and just govern our communities, but we're not ready for that. And so, Don, I want to bring you back in the conversation real quick, because one of the things Wallow said, and y'all all comment on this because he said that you can't 
you can't solve a noun problem with yesterday language. What do you, what will it take, John, to kind of get more of you guys out uh, as activists? Are there more of you? Are we missing it? Yeah, there's a lot of us. Like, it's a lot, a lot of us out here. There was a lot of us there. There was a lot of us there. There was a lot of them with major platforms, with major followers that, that be in the community every single day. And what Wallo said, they're so stuck in yesterday that they're not even focusing on tomorrow. They're not even studying. It's like an essay. Like, how am I going to get an A on my essay if I didn't even read, you know, or do my research or even put the time in to see who's the youth that's really in the field talking about gun violence every day? And then you never know if that young man, that young queen is going to give up because she might feel like she's just talking at a wall, you know? And that's where me and Ant come in, where we motivate these kids every day. Like, listen, keep going. If they, they're listening to you, no matter if one person here to a thousand. But they're, I'm talking about, it was over 35 of them. And we were all standing next to each other. That's a sense of unity where we feel as though sometimes the older people aren't even as united as the young people are. We shared, we took a picture, remember? And at the end of the picture, we were like, it's crazy that the people in this picture, we all share each other's content every single day. We said that right at the rally too. Yeah, and Ant gave you um, Philly's motivation, gave up his platform to to share it with you, John. You, di I didn't hear you speak, but I've seen you at other. I've seen John at other rallies. Like I've seen you out there. He's always kind of quiet. <laughs> I'm not really big on rallies, and I'm not even too big on uh, speaking on larger platforms. But what I've realized over the years is that I have a voice that young people listen to and sometimes i had to get out of my comfort zone to speak and connect with those those guys that i can reach because i know i can reach them and I, I like to do a lot of things behind the scenes but i feel like it's very important that i speak more on platforms and be more vocal because we're going to i'm going to need to do that in order to reach the people that i want to reach at a higher level and a lot of things that i do i do it outside of the the camera. I feel like, I feel like the, the issue with, you know, us younger people not getting opportunities to speak on platforms is that, for one, it's, it's political. And for two, they're gatekeepers. And it takes so long for you to get past the gatekeepers that I feel like about time, when you reach a certain age, maybe 30, 40 years old, and you finally get past that gate, you kind of like up in age to the point where you're not able to reach the people that you want to reach. We got a lot of young guys out here that's doing the stuff that we do. I know a lot of them. They need to be at these platforms. Like, they need to speak on these platforms. That's why one of the things that I do is I organize and I connect with younger people that's doing the same thing because we need to be highlighted. And the media tends to focus on the bad that people doing or overlook the people that's out here doing the work right now. And that just needs to change if they want to be effective. The only good thing is that we have social media. So we have a direct connection to the people that we want to reach outside of them giving us platforms. But even still, we need to be involved in the entire process of addressing this issue. I'm talking about from the top to the bottom. If they really want to address this, because when, when I come in these rooms, like I said, and I speak to these guys, and all of them old enough to be my father, for real, for real. And I speak to them. That's one thing that I constantly speak on. Y'all need to get young people in these rooms. And... I guess they're starting to understand that because they had, you know, these two young guys on the platforms, but that's, that, that needs to happen more often. And I think that people are wringing their hands. I mean, I attended two days of hearings. I don't even know if anything is going to change because there was no discussion of next steps. Said it was just kind of like, this is the problem and it's persistent. And so I, I want to kind of talk about 
one of the things they said was we need to focus on the issue of the gun. This is a, is this a cultural thing? What makes this so attractive? And John, you touched on this, and Dana, you touched on it too. What I was talking about, far as in the culture, I get like I like all types of music. I don't think I know I don't think realistically like there are music within our culture supposed to be just just positive. So you do need the negative as well. My problem is the glorifying of the negative and the, the resources industry-wise, music industry-wise, that comes to when you do negative music. So if you see these kids and they see that, okay, this person, I get the chains, I get the girls, I get all the money if I rap about getting high. And you start to become what you believe. Now, when you when you constantly listening to the music, every morning, every day, these kids only look up to their favorite stars and their favorite stars is talking about the negative stuff, like glorifying it and getting high. So that's the problem with our culture for what I was talking about. It's the same thing with the guns. The kids just like the way the guns look. And if some of them don't know what they get themselves into, some of them can handle it and some of them can't. But it's no one way to really attack everything about gun violence. It, it goes from schools, it goes from parenting as well. Some kids going home to a toxic household every single day and they leave, they go to an after school program, yeah, but when they come back home, they gotta be in that same toxic environment that makes you want to do negative things or get involved in gun violence. Yeah, and I see that. I mean, and John, you touched upon this and, and Philly's motivation. I want you to comment on that as well because John, you touched upon the fact that once you get in it, like you were kind of stuck. So a lot of, so I was I was fortunate to come home and the guys that I was going to war with, they had also matured over the years. And I was able to actually sit down with these guys. Me and a group of my friends were able to sit down with these guys and um, reach a place within our maturity to end the violence. But like I said, most people that's out here that's involved in gun violence are not so um, inclined to do so as far as like not causing harm to you even after they understand that you turned your life around. So that, that becomes a it becomes a problem when you don't have the the resources or the finances to take yourself out of your environment and um, to prevent yourself to prevent your background your your history from catching catching back up catching back up with you. I'm sorry. So yeah, it, it's, it's just it's just it's just challenging. Um, and you know, most of the time, even within these groups of people that are involved in gun violence. It's typically only like a few of them, like maybe like one or two that's really um, influencing the rest of the people to continue on this path because there are guys out there that want better. Um, so there's, there's, there's so many different factors that you have to account for when addressing this issue. Um, it's, it's, it can be complex, but, you know, that's, that's kind of like one aspect of it that yeah. people need to be more considerate about because we tell these guys to put the gun down. And you know, it sounds good. It sounds, you know, put the gun down. It sounds good, but when you're telling a guy whose life is being threatened daily to put the gun down, are you willing to um, risk him putting that gun down 
and his life being taken. Like that's that's the reality. And it's not that it's not that I'm saying that I'm encouraging guys to pick up a gun, but I'm saying your human nature is to protect your life. I don't care if you I don't care if you out here doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Human nature says that if somebody is threatening you, you're gonna respond with a fight or flight response. Yeah. If you cannot leave your environment and somebody's trying to take your life, and the only way you can protect your life is to take their life, then you're going to do that. And it's unfortunate that some people are in that situation, but that is the reality out here for some people or for most people. And as a lot of people can't even fathom what, what y'all have seen, that you mm-hmm. say it out loud and they're like, nah, that couldn't happen. And yeah. you're like, yes, that did happen. Um, and, and I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah, Let no, me be clear. Let me be clear. There are some guys out here, they're so damaged and they've been so corrupted by their environment and the people around them that they, they get a thrill out of this lifestyle of gun violence. But yeah. it's also important for you to understand the perspective of those that were probably once involved in the lifestyle and want to get out, but the environment is pulling them. Facts. facts. So it's, 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 it's is one on one end you have a guy that's he just loves the he, he's grown a, a a thirst for gun violence because it's sensation it's sensationalized in music it's sensationalized in our culture we reward them everybody show these guys love that's involved in this type of this, this type of behavior but on the other end like I said you have guys that do one out and the environment is, is just so it's so dangerous that people are in a situation where they have to risk their freedom to protect their life. And I and I and I I was uncomfortable with coming home and not carrying a firearm. I'm gonna be real, because I knew that when I was in the streets, people were right. trying to kill me, right. and it is it's really difficult. Your anxiety, my anxiety was so high coming home, because I did not carry no gun since I've been home, and I had faith. I had enough faith not to carry it, but it's a risk in that though. I could have easily got killed not carrying a gun because I had no protection. You cannot rely on police to protect you. In our neighborhood. And and that right there, that speaks volumes about the mental health within our communities. Yeah. It's like we really want to attack each other and take a life. Think about how dead inside you gotta feel or you gotta be to just wanna take a life for the thrill of yeah. it. Yeah. Now protecting yourself is one thing. Cause me, I have kids now and I definitely can see myself doing anything if my kids get hurt. But yeah. what I'm saying is you got to be really dead inside to just like, yo, I'm going to really attack another person. Yeah. Because yeah. it's senseless beef. Yeah. And it's so sen- senseless because in most hoods, they can't even tell you where the beef started from. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be about a bunch of BS. And they're self-esteem. And they and I not just properties with they beefing over. Yeah. And I spoke about this recently. I spoke, to, I spoke about how you have a lot of guys out here, their self-esteem is so low that in order for them to feel like somebody, they feel like they have to go out here and shoot or kill somebody. And our culture and their peers and, and, and music and all these different things rewards them for this type of behavior to make them even feel even more empowered when they act like this. So it was like, you know. So I get it. I get both sides. I get yeah. both sides of it. Yeah. I want to talk solutions. And so because we're doing this on Zoom and I can see y'all, I want to do a quick show of hands and then we'll go into deeper about the different solutions. If I were to say, what is the solution? Police? I think no, the police no. is part of the solution. Part of the solution. Prison? 
No. Part of the solution. Jobs. Everything. Part of the solution. Everything is part of the solution. It, it really is. I, I don't. I don't feel like there's not. There's not one thing somebody can say to say that it's like the solution. It's every everything. Police. Um. Everything is part of the solution. It's about us. It's, it comes down to us systemizing the solutions and actually executing on the plans. Yeah, and everybody, everybody, everybody brings something different to the table. Like myself, if I was to say, what do I bring to the table? I come from the background. So when I speak, like people, especially people that know me, I make it cool for people to get out the streets. I've done it in my neighborhood. I make people feel like that's cool to do. And that's that's the part that I bring to the table. Somebody else may bring entrepreneurship to the table. Somebody else may bring something spiritual, spirituality to the table, or arts. Everybody has a different role that they have to play and contri to contribute to addressing these issues of gun violence. And most importantly, the community. Because the community, it don't matter how many solutions we bring to the table, if the community is not stepping up and getting involved in this process, we're going I to think continue to see homicides happen because they are not yeah. involved in this process. They cry, the they pray, the they do all these different things, but they are yeah. not involved in this process for the long term. They yeah. come to a rally, but they will not do this. this they, they, they will not execute the plan and get involved for a long term period of time. And yeah. that's the issue. Because like I said, if you have leaders, if we have solutions and the community is not stepping up, that's the problem. And, and Philly's motivation, you wanted to comment on that. You I'm said sorry. that's the biggest part, Philly's No, 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 no. That, that's, that, he, he's telling the truth. Um, he's telling 100% the truth. The community, I think, is the, you know how we were saying we got small pieces, the education, the drug, the police. I think the community is the biggest part. If the community could just stick together, if the community could just put their pride to the side, if the community can believe in the youth, you get what I'm saying? If the if the community can go out there and tell them that I love you, the community can give them different alternatives. Think about how many resources we have in one community that can help. Yeah, them. yeah. And what does that yeah. look like? Yeah. Because we're about to wrap up. What does that look like to say, because people always say the community, the community, community. But what does that look like? If we were to say, okay, like, all right, community, we're going to step up. What are they supposed to do? Like, give They need to evolve. They need to evaluate what it is that they can bring to the table. Yep. I don't care if you got to speak to a guy that you know in your neighborhood. Find yep. out what it is that you can bring to the table and bring it to the table. It's yep. really that simple. You don't have to be at the forefront giving a speech in front of thousands of people. You don't have to be trying to find jobs for people, find, trying to find resources. Find out what it is. I don't care if it's big or small and bring that to the table yep. and follow up on the, on the plans. Yeah. I mean, it's, to even, me, it's that simple. Yeah, even meals. Like, say a young kid out there, young kid's not shooting and robbing because he wants to shoot and rob. He's probably hungry. He probably need clothes. He probably couldn't afford something. Big mama, help that kid. Big mama's back in the days to bring kids and let the whole neighborhood eat a meal. Now they're not putting electric near their property anymore. You know, stop yeah. being scared and step up. You got to be willing to stand on something to fall for anything. We shouldn't yeah. be doing it. Why the youth going to do it? But then y'all talk down on our generation. But you guys just want to talk, but you guys don't want to put the action in. I, I'm yeah. off of actions. I'm not off of verbals. It has to be. It has to be a collaboration, in my my opinion, between the young people and the older generation. Yeah, as well. yeah, that's not And also, like just putting the egos aside, and everybody yeah. just know what role they're going to play and exactly. where everybody's strengths at. You know, like 
I can't certain things I can't teach you about are that I don't have literacy on, but you may know something and I may yeah. be able to get it in the right person's hands, et cetera, et cetera. And we all had that mindset and just say, all right, just because I ain't from North Philly or because I'm originally I'm from South Philly, but just because I ain't from North Philly, that don't mean I can't do activism with North Philly influencers yeah. or uptown influencers or West, et cetera. Yeah. We all had that mindset just like, yo come together like the resources is going to be even stronger especially it would be easier for us to strategize and plan and get results that we want if we all really just be in cahoots but to the people that these people look up to these young kids look up to the meat mills and the milanos yeah, get them involved yeah. too because this is who they listen to every morning we're talking about the yeah. kevin parts man the will smith the news yeah. outlet stop showing the killings and then ending the video let's talk about how we can resolve to it show that the news outlets who's been on our tvs for 30 years that y'all part of it too that y'all care about our communities too and so they're yeah. just supporting it care about it mm -hmm. i love it and yeah. because this is flashpoint we do have to wrap up you know let's say y'all have the ear of those in power right now you were to give them a one or two line suggestion on how to not fix but to at least move us forward in curbing this violence, what would you say? They support you guys to the fullest. Now it's time for you to support them to the fullest. Their ears are open in them. And it's just from my perspective, maybe because doors and, opportunity, and opportunities has been opening. Their ears are opening for us, fellas. And for any other young people out there listening, the ears are open. We Once we, we need to get more clear where our ass, and I believe the doors are really open for us to come in and be able to help make change, really make a change. Because yeah. the generations is gonna change no matter, nobody can control that. Yeah. And nobody can control that. And final words? I think, I think they pretty much summed it up. Put the young people at the forefront and leverage the wisdom of the elders. I wanna say thank you to you, Philly's Motivation, to Aunt Brown and to John Solomon. Thank you, thank you for having us again. Next up, Joe Biden selects Kamala Harris as his VP. But what does it mean for the Democratic Party? It is time to swing the door open to allow black women to be represented. A party influencer gives an inside look at what it'll take to get the Biden-Harris ticket to the finish line. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our past newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the Cos out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is the Biden-Harris Democratic ticket. Vice President Joe Biden made his announcement via text message and Twitter Tuesday that Senator Kamala Harris would be his running mate. It sparked excitement, but also attacks by the Trump campaign. So what does the choice of Harris signal for the future of the Democratic Party? And does this historic ticket have what it takes to unseat Trump? With me to talk about this Flashpoint is the Reverend Leah Daughtry. She was the CEO of the Democratic National Convention in 2016 when it was here in Philadelphia. Reverend Daughtry, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you again. Yes, nice to see you again too. It's been it's been a while. And four years. <laughs> four years, I know. And first big question, your reaction to Vice President Joe Biden selecting 
Senator Kamala Harris? It was absolutely uh, exciting, uh, thrilling, all of the all of the big words, uh, a once in a lifetime moment. Well, hopefully not once in a lifetime, but at least one, the first in my lifetime that we've seen an African-American woman at the head of the ticket, you know, as the vice president. So it's a, just, just a wonderful moment in history and so grateful that I'm alive to see it. And now you have been the chief of staff for the Democratic Party. You have also put together two conventions, tough work. People in Pennsylvania have been saying, Biden-Harris, dream team, how do you see it? You know, I think it is a great team. I think the vice president really displayed uh, the wisdom to make this great decision, this historic decision. They are, uh, she is a great compliment for him and I'm confident she will be a wonderful governing partner. Uh, assuming we win, she'll be, a, we know she's great on the campaign trail. She's great at raising money and I think she's a welcome needed boost to the ticket. A great compliment from him. I thought that their press conference yesterday was stellar, absolutely first rate. They both hit their marks and gave us really a glimpse of what we're going to see over the next 83 days or so. It really made me proud and more excited than ever to not only vote for the ticket, but go and work for the ticket. And what do you think this says about Vice President Biden, that he made this pick? I mean, there was a lot of pressure on him to choose a woman and then to make it a a woman of color. What do you think the choice says about him? You know, I thought when he first said uh, back in March that he wanted to choose or that he planned to choose a woman to serve as his running mate, it sparked all kinds of excitement, I think, across the electorate, both male and female. Uh, but then when we really thought about it, I said, this could be a black woman. We should, uh, we have so many African-American women who are uh, qualified for this. And so let's put them all into the, into the zeitgeist and see where we wind up. And as you saw in the last 11 of the potential uh, picks, more than half of them were black, which is just thrilling for me as a black woman to see that many in the mix. I think it really shows that the vice president, Vice President Biden understood the moment that we are living in, particularly after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I think he understood that this was an opportunity to make history, to really uh, give um, life to the commitments and the promises and the, and the things that he's been saying about building the bridge to the next generation, about expanding the tent, about the diversity of our party. So I thought in this one pick, he checked all of those boxes. He, he picked someone who is the future of the party. He picked someone who reflects the diversity of the party, who reflects the strengths of the party. And he picked someone who is qualified and ready to campaign and ready to govern on day one. So uh, he couldn't have picked a better choice, I think. Yeah. And one of the things I've heard you say is that, look, you know, Black women have been doing the work in this party. You are one of the most influential members of of the Democratic Party, very influential voice. And you think about it, Black women were everywhere. I was here when it was here in Philadelphia in 2016. I was shocked to see so many Black women in leadership in the party. Do you think the Black women deserve this pick? We did deserve this pick, and that was one of the the, uh, statements I made to the vice president when I had the opportunity to talk with him about it. 
we have been black women we are the most consistent voting block in the nation 72% of black women 73% of black women are registered to vote we are 16 million strong and cycle after cycle election after election black women show up for the democratic party and bring people across the line Doug Jones in Alabama always says that he would not have won that Senate seat without 98% of black women supporting him. And he understands he won't win it again with unless he has tremendous African-American support uh, from women. So we have been the ones that have kept this party moving. We've been the ones to elect uh, people based on their merits, whatever their race, color, creed. We've been the ones to keep this party alive. So it is time, past time, it is always appropriate for the, for the party to recognize our contributions and to make the table bigger, add more chairs, swing the door open to allow black women to be represented at the same measure, not more than, but at the same measure that, the black, that black women have invested in the party. We just wanted a return on our investment. So now you got the pick. So what does that mean? And not just for black women within the party, but black women and women of color throughout the country. What does this mean? Well, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the black woman as the vice president is the end all and be all, not at all in no way, shape or form. In this administration, I expect and I require that we have black women as cabinet secretaries, that we have black women as senior positions in the White House, that we have black women leading the DNC, that we have black women in every single space that black women can be and that this administration can control. We already see black women running for office. We have record numbers of black women running for Congress, and we will have record numbers of black women winning. They've already won their primaries. They are coming to Congress and there will be record numbers. We now have a black woman who is the Democratic nominee in the Tennessee Senate race. Unheard of, Marquita Bradshaw beat a field of seven with $8,000 in the bank, and now she's the nominee. We, this is not the end. This is a great uh, 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 high watermark on the chart, but it's certainly not the top of the ticket. It's not president, it's vice president, and we understand that. But there are so many more roles that we can play, and that's important. And let's just say this, the polls all show that voters up and down the ballot, white women, black women, Latinos, male and female, all said that they wanted a woman of color, that they wanted a black woman at the top of the ticket, and that's what they wanted to see, and that's what they were going to be happy to support. Well, who concerns you? Is there a demographic that would be helpful to getting the Biden-Harris ticket over the line that, that you need, that you're concerned about, and that the party will be concentrating on? You know, I think that uh, we, need, we need everybody always concerned every single cycle about the millennial vote, meaning, and I don't even know if it's, it might be Generation Zs now. I'm not sure what the, the right uh, age up. is. They're coming up, but, yeah. Because they are, if they would vote their strength, they would be the largest voting block in the nation. But they, we have seen cycle after cycle that they don't often actually show up at the polls. They don't vote their strength. And there's a lot of apathy there and a lot of uh, a lack of misunderstanding. I sometimes tie it to the lack of civic education in our school system. We don't learn about the role of government anymore the way that we did when I was growing up. Um, and so that particular demographic, if there was one that I could say, 
listen, go and vote. We need you. If you want things to be different for your generation, if you, millennials, my nephew's a millennial. He's the last year millennials. He's 30. He has a wife and a kid. He got, a, he got rent, a car note and all that. These are not kids we're talking about anymore. If I could do anything, it's like if you care about your future and the future of the children you are now rearing, then you've got to make, you've got to get yourself to the polls and vote. And not just, let's not make it only about the presidency. It's the Senate, it's the House, yes, but it's also your mayor, your yeah. city council, your state assembly, those people who have the most direct impact on your day-to-day -day life because they decide what your property taxes are going to be. They decide when your trash is getting picked up. They decide what the school curriculum is. You got to go stake a claim and make a decision, not only for your life, but for the lives of those who are coming behind us. So that one demographic, the younger folks, is who I, I'm always concerned about because it's been historically uh, accurate that they do not vote at the levels that they should. Mm -hmm. And so you, you see that uh, President Donald Trump, his campaign has already come out swinging. Mm -hmm. I, don't even, I could almost set a clock to when the attack started, um, calling, you know, Senator Harris nasty, uh, saying that she was, you know, just so super liberal, um, despite the fact that she seems to have been more moderate than many of the other candidates. Do, do any of those uh, attacks give you heartburn? Not really, because you almost expect them. What I've actually been surprised about is that the uh, Mr. Trump and the GOP don't seem to have sorted through how they're going to approach Senator Harris's candidacy. And so they have uh, resorted to his old language of nasty. He used that with Hillary Clinton. He used that with April Ryan and Yamisha Sinda and Abby Phillips. He uses that all. That's not nothing new. Now he's saying she's liberal. Is that the best you got? Oh, my goodness. Which shows me they have done no work on this, and they don't quite know how to deal with Senator Harris on this ticket. Because if you go too hard at, the, at her being a woman, you're likely to use, lose women. If you go too hard at her being black, then you're just going to rev up black people further if you go to. So I don't think they figured it out, which I'm really very surprised that they did not invest the time to figure out how they were going to run against her. Mm -hmm. And she's highly qualified. I mean, she's former, you know, prosecutor, attorney general. She's blazed trails in both of those positions, made herself highly visible as senator. But she ran for president, you know, was one of the candidates, knew how to steal a moment. What can you really... <laughs> really say, I mean, you know, about uh, this candidate, you're doing that, the shoulder shrug, people can't see you, but you're doing the shoulder shrug. And it's like, that's probably why she was the pick. That's exactly. She is eminently qualified. She's run uh, statewide in our most popular state, California. You don't win in California unless you've got some progressive values. And she's run for president. So anything anybody was going to throw at her, we already know. We already have it. There's nothing to say. So what are you going to do? And I think that's why the, you see the Republicans resorting to their old language, nasty, liberal. It's like, okay, that's old. What else you got? Is that the best you got? Because if that's the best you got, listen, then we got this wrapped up. <laughs> You're like, we ready. We ready. We ready. So I want to, for the podcast, I got to switch gears and ask a bit because you planned conventions. And yeah. this is the first time this is going to be virtual. Yeah. I mean, just your thoughts on that. And are you glad it's not you? Number one, yes, I am glad it is not me. I've been glad for quite some time. 
That's one. Secondly, I think with COVID and the pandemic, there really wasn't a choice. That this was the responsible thing to do, which to have it virtually. And and we would have been hypocritical if we'd done it any other way, as we are constantly every day slamming the president and his decision-making process or lack thereof when it comes to protecting the health of Americans. We would have been hypocritical to have a convention with uh, you know, several thousand of our closest friends, particularly now that we know it was an African-American that's gonna be the vice president. That's another historic moment. I, I'll tell you just for myself, uh, I'm an automatic delegate and they gave us the word that we shouldn't come and all that. I didn't cancel my hotel room until uh, oh, last week because I kept saying to myself and I, can, I wouldn't pay, uh, turn in my balance. Like if it's a black woman on the ticket, I want to be in Milwaukee to see that. Yeah. So when, once they announced that Joe Biden wasn't going to Milwaukee and the VP candidate, whoever it was, wasn't going to, that's when I canceled my room because I was holding out hope. Uh, I wanted for that particular moment, but th- I don't think there was any choice that the party had really, yeah. To, but, but to change it. Well, how do you keep this excitement? Because I mean, watching that press conference, I, I thought, like you said, it was flawless. The tweets were coming out uh, to punctuate some of what was being said real time. Um, but how do you keep that excitement, and how do you keep people engaged? Because you know, having attended it and covered a convention. Being on the floor, I mean, it's nothing like it. Nothing like it. And it's hard to do. It's going to be hard to do. A girlfriend called me and said, Leah, you may, you may have just be the last CEO of the last Democratic convention, at least, wow. uh, at least the way we've always done them. Here's the thing. Most people, millions of people watch the conventions. All of them are watching on television. That's just usual. There are, there are a few of us, you know, there are 5,000 delegates and about 15,000 media that you fit in the hall. We're the ones who actually get to be there and see it in the arena live. Everybody else is watching on television. That's yeah. usual. So the, the question for us, what, what's missing is, and as a preacher, What's missing is the live crowd and the energy you get from the crowd as you are delivering speeches. What is working for the party, I think, is that we have now been in physical distancing, you know, since, you know, it seemed like 142 years. So all of us, including the preachers among us, have learned how to deliver a sermon with no audience, right? And not step on your lines and all that. What the party has to do is, is, share with the American people who are watching online, uh, who are accustomed to watching it online, but we have stiff competition now with Netflix and Prime Video and Disney Plus and all the channels that we can tune in at night. You don't have to watch TV live anymore. Mm-hmm. What is the program that you're going to produce that will engage people, that will make people say, like they did in Philadelphia, let me tune in early because did you see it last night? You don't want to miss it tonight. We accomplished that in Philadelphia and they'll have to do the same thing this cycle. Fortunately, we got all the Hollywood people on the democratic side of the ledger (laughs) and they've all been roped in. So I'm sure that the same people that get us to watch Greenleaf and uh, all these other great shows and um, 
will be uh, producing something that will make us watch every night. From and, that's, and that's with the transition because as a storyteller, you know, and someone who tells story, real life stories, that is a, a benefit is they get to use a lot of those devices to help you know, produce content. It doesn't have to be, they can make it whatever they want to be because no one, and you guys are, you know, and the DNC is first. Yes. So you can set the standard. Someone asked me yesterday, well, aren't you afraid that the president's going to have his speech at Gettysburg and you won't be able to compete? I said, no, not at all. I'm from New York. We got the Statue of Liberty. We got the Brooklyn Bridge. We got our own set of iconic things. Philadelphia, you, you got the Liberty Bell. <laughs> so, Every state and what we're asking every state party to do is to broadcast from an iconic venue in their own states to do the roll call. And to, so 50 United States of America, each one of us has an iconic venue that is more us than any place else. And in Philadelphia, you certainly have the historic ones, but you got the modern ones too that really speak to the heart and soul of what Pennsylvania is. And that's just Philadelphia. Get to Amish country and some of the other places, Pittsburgh yeah. and the steel mills. There's so many iconic things that, that we can now bring into the viewing experience. So that voters in Pennsylvania, when they tune in, they see themselves and their state and their, and their neighbors as involved and visible in the process. So it can be very exciting and I'm looking yeah. forward to it. So if Vice President Biden and Senator Kamala Harris were to cross that finish line and, and get the W in November, first of all, what would it take to get them there? And then what would that mean just historically. So first, the work that it's going to take. What is it going to take? It is going to take work and it is going to take all of us to roll up our sleeves, make sure the people that aren't registered are registered, that people will cast their ballots. It's going to, and it's going to be a pull because now we know that half of Americans, I think it's 75% of Americans, now have the opportunity to vote by mail. Because of this pandemic, we don't have a playbook for how you turn out a vote at absentee ballots. That's going to take each one of us knocking on doors. I live in my apartment building. I live at the end of the hall. So on my way to the mailbox, knocking on every door, have you voted? 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 And making sure auntie and uncle and, and baby kids and grandma, everybody turned in their ballots is going to take that level of engagement hand-to-hand, door-to-door, neighbor-to-neighbor to make sure people are voting in order for us to make the margin cheat-proof. Because we know the other side is engaged in voter suppression and voter intimidation tactics. We got to make this margin cheat-proof where there's just no way they can hide all the ballots. Uh, so there's work for us to do, and I encourage everyone to get engaged, find an organization. If you don't know an organization, be your own organization. Get Organize your block. And I'll mm -hmm. give you a very important website, vote.org. Very simple, vote.org. If you go on vote.org, you can check your own registration and make sure you're current. You, you can learn when your ballot deadlines are. There are some states who will start voting in September, who can start yeah. turning in their ballots in September. You will learn what your particular state's rules are, 
if you want to get an absentee ballot, when to get it. I encourage people to get it and vote early. Don't wait till November. If you already know you vote, for, go ahead and turn the vote in. So there's no excuse with the post office. Vote.org, really great uh, website run by a great sister. And it's all 50 states and the territories, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Dems Abroad, you name it. You can check yourself and get information there for your voting status. Well, the good news is that with the selection of Senator Harris, you got the AKAs, you got the HBCUs, <laughs> you got all the churches. Everybody's going to really, you know, rally, I think, and get to work on this. And it's going to take a lot of work. So if folks are successful, dream a little bit. I mean, getting across that finish line, historically, what would that mean to you personally and to just women generally? Uh, if that were to happen? You know, I think back to the night that um, Barack Obama was elected. And my nephew, he's now 30. He looked at me, he was with me that night, and he looked up at me and he said, Auntie Leah, now I think I can, I believe I can do anything. As much as we had tried to give him the best schooling and travel and experiences, so that he would feel accomplished and ready to go into the world. It wasn't until Barack Obama got elected and he saw himself that the ceilings on his possibility were lifted. Now his daughter, his, my grandniece is three years old. Mm. I said on her birthday, we had a birthday party for her by Zoom. And I said to her, Lauren Joy, Auntie Leah is working night and day to get you a vice president so that when you look on television at night or during the day, you will see a woman who looks like you, who has hair like you, who sounds like you in a position of authority that we call Madam Vice President. What that will mean for black little girls all across the nation and black little boys who can who will grow up learning that women can be in power and authority and not be a threat to you but this is just the matter of regular course of business i think the possibilities and the for what that means for our children are incredible, not to mention us older people who've worked so hard to swing doors open, to make room for others, to push people forward, whether you are in politics, in business, in entertainment, in education, having someone that we will say, Madam Vice President, every single day for four years, and then perhaps after that, Madam President for 2024 and 2020 is it, it just uh, it, the symbolism of that and some people like to discount it but the symbolism of that yeah is amazing it's just amazing i'll tell you one last story i was in south africa a few years ago with president clinton on one of his foundation trips and we were out with some kids from south africa we were playing some games and one little boy diego i'll never forget he walked up to me and he said they say the president is here and I said, yeah, the president is here. She, he said, I, where is he? I don't see him. And I pointed to Bill Clinton. He said, I, where? I said, he, he's standing. And I was so confused. I was like, he's standing right there. The guy with the silver hair, he said, Diego was probably eight. He turned to me. He said, you mean a white man can be president? In his life, the presidents of his country, having come out of apartheid, were black. When he turned on the television, Barack Obama was the president of our country. It didn't occur to him 
that white people could be in, could be president. It was an office for black people. What if all of our children grew up understanding that this the White House is a place where they belong, that it is open and that the highest offices in this land are places they belong. They are not interlopers. They're not interrupters. They belong there. It's their house too. Imagine the possibilities that our children grow up with and what it means for how they move and walk and live and breathe in the world. I also hope that that means that we will have cabinet secretaries. We will have mayors and governors and senators who will help to change the policies. So we will have the substance and the symbolism so we can change the policies that so negatively impact African-Americans in this country and address the Supreme Court justice in there. Supreme <laughs> Court justice, yes, ma'am. And, and, and to his credit, Vice President Biden has already committed that he will nominate an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. It's Black woman's time right now. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's Black people's time. And it's the let's go. Let's go get, let's get this. Let's get this. Thank you so much to Reverend Leah Daughtry for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, she sets up community refrigerators stocked with produce in neighborhoods that need it. Any little bit helps when you work together with your neighbors. The woman behind the mutual aid wave growing in Philadelphia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KWW, we are all about community and a local businesswoman is providing free food for those in need through a project that has a take what you need, leave what you don't motto. Here to talk about the Community Fridge Project is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, founder and CEO of Mama T, Dr. Michelle Nelson. Welcome to Flashpoint, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Flashpoint. Yay. And so, first of all, when I read about the Community Fridge Project, I was like, oh, my God, I love it so much. For folks who have never heard of it, please explain the concept. It, it's a community-driven effort, and it brings people in the neighborhood together to help one another, help their neighbors, help their friends by way of a free food system. We fill it with foods, fruits and vegetables specifically. You mentioned the take what you need, leave what you don't motto. It's very much based on that where you can leave food in there, provide food for your neighbors and friends, but if you need help, you can also take food from the fridge. We work with a host location that we make an agreement with. We tell them about our project, what we're trying to achieve for the neighborhood, and that host gives us permission to literally connect the fridge to their business. For example, we're connected to Ambassador, which is at 635 West Girard, and the owner, Khalil, just loved the concept when we talked to him about it initially. And he was our first host, and he got his GC to come out and do the connection for us, and uh, we were up and running. So we really appreciate our host. Our second host is Franny Lou Porches Cafe in Kensington. Say, you know what, we should put fridges outside so people can just have access to food. Well, the idea came mainly from uh, my time in New York. So I lived in New York and when I was visiting there recently, 
I really got involved with the free food fridge project. I, I took a page from their book, used them as a case study, looked at how it was servicing the community, looked at how the fridge is helping to satisfy a problem with food insecurity. And I thought, you know, Philly is a good candidate for this. One out of five Philadelphians suffer from some level of food insecurity. There are 70 fewer grocery stores in the city of Philadelphia. So food deserts not only exist in Philly, they persist in Philly. Any little bit helps when you work together with your neighbors, with your community at large to provide food. So you, there are a number of fridges. Mama T has a couple of fridges, but other people have sort of like created these fridges too. Yes, yes. And it's a beautiful thing to see because the work and the help is needed. There are so many pockets in Philly of neighborhoods that could use a fridge or two. Do your homework, I suggest, when setting up a fridge and launching. There's a lot more than just putting up a fridge in a neighborhood. Um, I would suggest that you get to know the neighborhood. We do a neighborhood analysis, so we're very boots on the ground. We make sure that we talk to the residents and the community at large to know what they want in their neighborhood before we just launch a fridge. So we get community permission to be there. We make friends and then we determine if the neighborhood is a good fit for a community fridge. And how do you maintain something like this? The fridge can get crazy. Yes, yes it can. <laughs> You're not wrong about that. We have the best volunteers ever. So we've been bombarded with emails of people just wanting to volunteer. So we have our own little schedule for the fridge in Kensington, for the fridge in Fishtown. Um, and they do wonderful things. Not only do they stock the fridge, they also clean the fridge. And we typically get fridges that are slightly used. Um, so the fridges, they don't arrive with a lot of issues. Um, so we make sure that whatever we receive as a fridge donation or fridges that we acquire are already in good working order. We encourage anybody who else who wants to volunteer because we're launching another fridge in West Poplar. You can email us at mamatees at gmail.com. Absolutely wonderful. And so tell people a little bit about you uh, and Mama Tees and what you do for the community. Mama-T.com is an e-commerce store. We created the brand to support groups that are fighting against inequality and injustice. So by way of the retail, there's a lot of um, messaging in the branding that correlates with that. But we always, as a group, we wanted to do something socially impactful so it was a right fit to do the community fridge. Yeah, and I gotta say this mutual aid, what are you hoping that this does for community generally? I'm hoping that it spreads and I'm hoping that it not only spreads just as fridges go, but on a deeper level, the awareness, you can imagine the help that people need now um, with, with what we're dealing with in this pandemic. So I would hope for awareness to spread all over for people to find out their own way. It doesn't have to be a fridge necessarily. Find your own way in your community in the way that you can help. Um, every little bit helps. Michelle, how can people support you? 
Um, we have a GoFundMe page. It's um, under the Mama Tea Fridge Project. So if you even Google Mama Tea Community Fridge, then you'll find and GoFundMe, you'll find the GoFundMe page there. We appreciate all the donations that have been uh, posted thus far. Yeah. And so what's your vision for the project? The vision is to satisfy what we um, set out to do. Our goal is 20 or more fridges throughout Philadelphia. And we believe with the support that we have so far, we will definitely achieve that goal. Amazing. And so give us your website one more time so people can check you out. It's www.mama-t.com. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on Flashpoint and good luck. We really appreciate you bringing this wonderful project to Philadelphia. I thank you, Flashpoint, and I thank everyone else. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. I want to end with an anonymous quote that resonated with me. It says, teach your daughters to worry less about fitting into glass slippers and more about shattering glass ceilings. Until next week, I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Thanks for listening.